Once more this morning, would you pray with me? Our good and our glorious, our even frightful and awesome King, we pray this morning that a vision of you would stir in our hearts worship. We also ask, Lord, that it would stir in our hearts comfort, that you are our powerful and great and awesome King. Lord, we ask as we open your word this morning that you would be with us and guiding us, opening our eyes, opening our ears, and softening our hearts to your message. Be with us. These things we pray in the name of your Son. Amen. So turn with me, if you would, in your copies of God's Word or in the bulletin this morning to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. Uh, admittedly, if I had planned better, perhaps I had preached on Revelation 1 first and then Revelation 5, but as it were, we can consider this text and, and this sermon as sort of prequel to that story we talked about a couple weeks ago at the center of reality, that story we said about the slain lamb king and his loyal bunch of royal priests. But here we go back to the beginning of that same story, and much of what we learned, of course, then will we'll shed light on this text this morning. We're in chapter 1, but I'm going to start the reading down in verse 9. In verse 9, John actually starts to narrate his experience of receiving this vision. He sees this vision unexpectedly, then he records it, and then he'll add the greeting here and the prologue and send this to the seven churches. But our focus today is on how John tells the story of how Jesus came to him and gave him the vision we have that constitutes the rest of this book. And I cannot express emphatically enough just how significant it is that John had a vision. This book and this text before us is not the product of a creative writing process. It is John reporting his experience. And the significance of that fact is that insofar as John is recounting to you, communicating to you, his own experience of a vision of the glorified Christ, to that extent, every time you open this book, read this passage, indeed even this morning in this space, you are a recipient of that special gift of Jesus into the facts, into the knowledge of the facts, of great significance that makes sense of the facts of our everyday experience. You are given with John the heavenly front row seats, as it were, to this great drama around which your life turns. Now, yes, uh, this kind of literature you may have heard before, this apocalyptic Literature, it's a genre. 
It's a genre that we find um, many texts written in around the same time period as the New Testament was written. But what God does in his wisdom is he then takes this unique genre, which in his providence is very apt at communicating profound realities through mental images. He takes this, and in his wisdom, he uses it to tell us the same story told in the four Gospels, the same story told in Acts, the same story told in Paul's letters, but he tells you in such a way, through this kind of of writing, he tells you this story in a way that is especially designed to drop your jaw as you behold the story. God did not decide to stop giving you information about Jesus once we get to that point in the story when Jesus ascends up behind the clouds. God in his wisdom uses this genre to say more to you about what Jesus is continuing to do even now. He uses this genre to communicate to us that the way in which Jesus accomplishes his redemption, the story of Jesus' working on our behalf, continues. And so he includes in this text, even this morning, an indication to us that our Lord is still working on our behalf. So while this is not the only reason that this is true, Revelation is, is a, a a a book that makes it completely untrue that the Bible is just an artifact of a bygone era of historical events. And so we, we, we learn here not only something of what Jesus was like and what he might have done during his ministry, but we learn something intimately about who Jesus is and the kinds of things he is is still doing. And for that matter, we learn something about what our life is like, whether or not we realized it or not. We learn something about what life is now. So read this book, because God has specially and and specifically designed it to improve, as it were, the, the vision of our eyes of faith So before we have even read our text this morning, you might consider all of this the the first point of our sermon this morning. Behold your king. Read now with me the word of God, Revelation 1, starting in verse 9, to the end of the chapter. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation And the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Stardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white 
like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those things that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So to begin this morning... Put a picture in your mind of what you would imagine to be looking at if I told you to to imagine a great king walking around his castle. How might you go about describing that picture? You might describe what kind of clothes the king is wearing. You might describe what he looks like, what kind of facial features he has. You might describe the way he carries himself in a regal manner. You would describe how he looked walking the great halls of his palace. You would try and describe what the inside of the castle looks like, perhaps. Now, that, that mental exercise is not simply an illustration of like, what John is trying to do for us here. It's more than that. The point is that any king that you might have ever seen or ever imagined, any fictional king or a real king, any palace of his, any king walking the secure and and beautiful castle of his kingdom, is just a mere earthly replica and reflection and pointer to what we read about in this text. Which is that this text actually teaches us how to more properly imagine this idea of the great king walking around his palace. This book is a letter to you right, from Jesus that's communicated through John. It's, it's written to these seven churches we listed. The reason there are seven churches is because seven is John's and the Bible's favorite number for perfection and, and wholeness. And although these historical seven congregations were likely the first to receive copies of this book, the seven represent the whole church. To be sure, this was sent out to more than just the seven churches. And, and so properly speaking, with reference to the seven, as a reference to the church writ large, the church as a whole, properly speaking, without any equivocation, 
This is a letter written from Jesus to you. Take very seriously the perhaps otherwise mundane word that you see at the beginning of verse 9. Partner. Partner. The significance of your partnership with John is that through John's eyes and ears and pen, what is occurring here in this text and what is occurring even in this space this morning is that Jesus is disclosing to you something of the significance of who he is, of where he is, and something about the significance then of who you are and where you are and what your life will look like. Specifically, what he is disclosing in this text is that he is the undefeatable king in his unassailable temple, which is also, as it were, where you are. And it is also where you suffer and where you endure and where you reign with him. That's what we want to unpack this morning, the image of this glorious king the nature of his holy temple palace, and then our role as his subjects within this vision. So perhaps at first glance, um, this text does not remind you of what I've called a king and his castle. So let me unpack this for us this morning a bit and encourage us to bask in its significance. So first look at the king with me. Look at verse 13. The first words that John uses to describe Jesus are, one like a son of man. One like a son of man. Now when John sees Jesus, he he doesn't say, "Uh, this is one who kind of looks like one who is a son of a man. That's not what this phrase means. John recognizes exactly who Jesus is. John was one of Jesus' disciples. He had walked around with him for years. The Gospels give John the distinguished title of the disciple whom Jesus loved. Though this is not a sighting of that Jesus that John would have recognized walking by the Sea of Galilee. This is not the lowly and humble Jesus who emptied himself and took on human flesh. The Jesus who turned the other cheek to the Pharisees, the Jesus who allowed himself to be strung up and staked to a tree. This isn't even the the resurrected Jesus who just shamelessly appeared in the room with the disciples to show them the holes in his hands. Even that Jesus was difficult to recognize, we know, because Mary mistook him for the gardener. But this Jesus, who of course is one and the same Jesus has been fully exalted so that at his very appearance, every knee cannot but immediately bow. This is the Jesus whose whose radiant glory will mean that on the new earth, Revelation will go on to say, we have no need for a son. Or think of it this way. This, this is the Jesus whom, whom the Grand Canyon, or, or whom the intricacy of the human eye, or whom the profound love that humans can feel for one another, whom all of these awe-inspiring things 
take as their reference point for what awesomeness is. That's this Jesus. And of course, the way that Jesus appears here to John is still in only a visionary form. A form that stretches John's imagination just only as far as an imagination still affected by the fall can go. This visionary form is still pointing to that day we could not handle right now. The day when we will stand resurrected before Jesus, before whom the world cannot but sing praise. But despite the strangeness and the awesomeness before John, he nonetheless recognizes exactly who this is. Because John is a faithful reader of Scripture. So he recognizes that this Jesus is the one called the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, portion of which was on the front of your bulletin this morning. Daniel found himself in a, a unique cultural moment for Israel of political oppression. It was a time when he and the rest of his fellow Israelites would have been tempted to wonder whether God's promise to David of an eternal kingship would ever come to fruition. And it is in this this context where God's promises seem like they were being put at risk by the powers that be at the time. In this context where they're asking, where is Yahweh's salvation? Where is Yahweh's Messiah? God gives Daniel a vision. And in this vision, he sees the Son of Man that stands in contrast and that conquers all of the human powers which sought to claim final authority. In that vision in Daniel 7, these kingdoms of the earth are therefore portrayed as these beasts. Because the truly human ruler, who would be the ruler who actually looked like what God intended Adam's rule to be, would be the fulfillment of Adam's commission, the one who was obedient the one who did what Adam ought to have done. Any king less than this, less than the one who establishes God's reign in God's name under God's authority, is less than what God designs to be human. It is beastly. And in contrast, in Daniel 7, to those beasts stands the Son of Man, the one like Adam, a son of Adam, literally in the Hebrew, son of Adam. Another unique feature of that vision in Daniel 7 is that Daniel also sees this multitude of saints. The Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days, which in that vision depicts the Father. And as he approaches the Ancient of Days, the text says the Son of Man has has conquered and then reigns with a dominion that cannot be destroyed. But although it was the Son of Man who actually overcomes the beasts and their power, the text says that it's the saints, this multitude of saints with the Son of Man, who are the ones who conquered the beasts. The saints conquered the beasts. See, Daniel 7 is this key text 
where for the Jews and eventually for the Christians, we, we see this profound promise that the truly human conqueror would represent all of his followers. And so just like as with the first Adam, Adam sinned, and, and therefore you, in fact, sinned, so also with the Son of Man. He conquers. And so, in fact, you, in him, conquer. This is the son of Adam, the king we've been waiting for since the first Adam. This is what John sees as he turns and sees this figure in his vision. But it would have been a hopeless sight still if John had not also noticed the the clothes that the Son of Man was wearing and the features that he had. Because no mere son of Adam can just undo what Adam did. Only God himself, taking the form of Adam, has the perfect faithfulness and righteousness and holiness and purity to withstand the devil's last weapon of death and come out the other side because death is not fitting for him. So Jesus here wears a robe and a sash that would be worn by a priest or by a king because Jesus is both our human ruler and our mediating priest. We see here that a sword is coming out of his mouth because he is also the perfect prophet whose words cut to the soul and wage war against the devil's lies. But he also has the white hair and the flaming eyes that in Daniel 7 describe the Ancient of Days the Father. This Son of Man shares in divine attributes. The Son of Man here is not only everything Adam should have been, but he is our God. And he has the infinite wisdom and and purity and omniscience that it takes to be the only one with the right to execute divine justice. Look down to verse 17. So now... Jesus doesn't just appear to John and we get John's description. Jesus actually now describes himself. So Jesus, what does he say? He says he is the first and the last, and as it were, then he rules over everything in between. No circumstance has surprised him. Nothing will outlast him. And he calls himself the living one because, verse 18, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, I know it can be a tricky subject to to think about um, what the Apostles' Creed means when it says, Jesus descended into hell. And I cannot resolve the complexities for you this morning completely. But I do know that when we confess that Jesus descended into hell, part of what we are confessing and declaring is that Jesus is the one who went where death wants everybody to go. And where death wants to put every person and where every sinner deserves to go. Jesus went down as far as there was to go. But he did not go simply as a prisoner. But as an invader who emerged victorious and, as it were, coming out with the keys of death itself. 
Part of why the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, you might say, is because Jesus has the keys to those gates. Jesus opens and he shuts, and anything that death does, death is allowed to do by Jesus. In chapter 6 in Revelation here, we, in the middle of the, the six seals, the fifth seal opens and we see martyrs under the throne. And we see them crying out, how long before you avenge our blood? And the answer they receive is, is not, well, listen, death is a tough enemy. It's going to take some time to figure this out. No. The answer they receive, and to paraphrase, using the rest of, of the book as well, is, is, is wait. Jesus isn't done letting death throw its final shameful fits. Jesus, put it this way, is, is not done giving death just enough rope to hang itself in its final defeat. In God's wisdom, in God's timing. As we saw in Revelation 5, every time death strikes a saint in the army of the Son of Man, every time somebody united to Christ becomes a victim in death's war against Christ, every time death is just ensuring that death's defeat is that much fuller and Christ's victory that much greater. Every pang that we feel for those who are in Christ is pregnant with a correspondingly greater glory. And it is Christ who in his infinite wisdom and rule and reign, who is weaving together this tapestry of our lives that involve tribulation and conflict with death unto his and our greater glory and death's greater shame. So when we cry, how long? The answer has nothing to do with how relatively strong death is at the moment, but everything to do with the authority, the patience, and the plan of Christ. And as surely as he is alive now, he will one day use the key to lock up death in death forever. This is your king. Look at the end of verse 18. Into verse 19. I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write. The letter here from Jesus to you through John is all about how then to think about the therefore of the fact of great significance that Jesus has conquered death. We will return to this idea, the therefore here, but for a moment then let's turn and consider the castle of your king. 
Now, I, I call it a castle or a palace just because this is the place where the king dwells. What Jesus discloses about the place where he lives here is that you are the place where he lives. Unlike the old Jerusalem, which had on the one hand a palace for the human king, and on the other hand a temple for the divine presence, in the new Jerusalem there is one structure, because we have a divine king. And this new city, this city temple palace is what, is what Paul calls the Jerusalem above. <clears throat> and this is the city that later in Revelation, John sees descending onto earth, onto the new earth. The lampstands here in this vision correspond, Jesus himself tells us, to the local churches. And if you look even at the beginning of the, the next chapter, at the beginning of the first letter written to Ephesus, you see that Jesus calls himself the one who walks amongst the lampstands. He teaches us here to imagine that, that as he is the king, he is the king walking around his palace, and that is to say that he is walking amongst his people, his church. So that even though we are here and he is there in heaven, the author of Hebrews can say something like, you have arrived at the heavenly Zion. This is because the Holy Spirit connects us to Jesus' presence. This is part of the great gift that Jesus gave us when he ascended into heaven and gave his spirit. When he establishes his kingdom on heaven, he pours it out into our hearts so that the temple of God is also on the earth. This is why when, when Paul says, you are the temple of God, what he means there is precisely that this new Jerusalem in heaven actually extends down to earth even now through the fact that the Holy Spirit is inside of us, has been poured into our hearts. This is the profound union between the heavenly temple and the local churches. It's the reality you quite seriously walk into and are summoned into in that call to worship. This is what John sees, this profound union. Verse 12, he sees the lampstands before he sees Jesus. He's suddenly looking here at the, the heavenly picture of the local churches, and then he is surprised to find Jesus among them. Let this sudden discovery of, of John here, for us, be a constant point of reference. So that as we walk our temporary earthly lives, we are walking them with this idea always with us that Jesus dwells among us. Now this concept that we are fond of, and, and rightly so, Jesus dwells in you. It is not simply a description of the warm sentiments that you feel for Jesus, and rightly so. But to say that Jesus dwells in you 
is, is not just to recognize his role in your experience, but to say something about your role in his life and in his story. The lampstand stood in the tabernacle and in the temple as a, a symbol of God's presence, just as the local churches and their members are in the same way, the way that God shares his presence with the world. But what is particular about the lampstand in the tabernacle, in the temple in particular, is in distinction from, from, say, the bread of presence, which also communicates that idea that God is here, is that, quite simply, the light from the lampstand shone out the windows of the temple. And Israel understood this to mean that God's light was to proceed from his presence with the people of Israel to cover and spread to the whole world. And it was Israel's commission to carry this light to the nations. And it is no coincidence that Jesus calls you the light of the world. That's bound up in the same story of God's light, as it were, that runs through Scripture and is figured here as the lampstands representing the local churches. You... Us, when we say, when we understand what John sees here, a description of the the union of God and his people, what, what we understand here is that us, the local church, are a piece of furniture in the spiritual temple where Jesus dwells. We'll come back to this again. But turn... Now to think about his subjects, the king, his temple, his temple palace. Now let's consider ourselves. So go back to our thought experiment. Go back to the image of a king that you conjured in your mind earlier. Okay? If the king you imagined was, say, of a certain race or ethnicity, what might you assume about the race or ethnicity of the people who he ruled? Or if the king you saw spoke a certain language, what might you infer about the language that his people speak? Or if the palace that he was in, in your mind, was made of lumber, timber, or was, was made from stacking bricks, or was made from being cut into the mountainside, what might that communicate to you about the, the geography or the the setting of his kingdom. See, what is true about the king and his castle is just significant for what his subjects and his kingdom are like. What is true about you is determined by the way you fit into this kingdom. So Jesus gives you the image here of a lampstand to help you grasp where you are as that piece of furniture in his kingdom and castle, to help you understand that that who you are in that way comes with that commission to be, as Jesus puts it to you, the light of the world. Now the most natural thing for the light of God's glory is for it to go out and pervade everything and to shine everywhere and to leave no shadow. 
That is the intention of the light coming out of the temple. It is to fill the whole world. It is the unnatural and the unfortunate and temporary fact that death, though, has erected mental barriers and veils, as Paul puts it, over their eyes of unbelievers to keep the light out. It is during this time, then, that the church's task to partake in the advance of our king's kingdom and his mission, then, is, is part of our task is to take down these strongholds, these veils, by using our words as we proclaim the gospel. And it is in this way that we take part in God's mission to shine his light into people's hearts. But of course, when we do this, we don't do it on our own. We don't remove the veil from sinners by our own authority or logical reasoning or philosophical proofs. Because that veil is death and the devil's work, and your words have no power against it. These things are useful. We must use them. But the penetrating brightness and the actual power of the light which the church sends out is the brightness and the power of God himself. So the weightiness and the authority and the effectiveness of what you do when you, when you spread his word does not rest with you. And that ought to be an encouraging thing. It does not depend on you. But rather the authority of the message comes from the fact that it is preceded by, thus says the Lord, the King. You are not the light. You are the lampstand that God uses to put himself on display. You are an extension of the temple on earth. This is your role and the purpose you have been given as furniture in his palace. Now what is true about your king is that he has the keys to death and Hades. What does that mean for you? Therefore, as Jesus says, the implication for his subjects is that you go about your life knowing that Jesus has already resolved your inevitable conflict with death. Jesus wrote this letter to encourage you to be a faithful witness to God's heavenly kingdom, a faithful witness of that kingdom to the earth that cannot see that kingdom, is blind to the kingdom. And nevertheless, he sends you out to be faithful in proclaiming this message, faithful all the way, as we saw in Revelation 5 and Revelation 14, following the Lamb wherever he goes, being faithful and carrying this witness, even unto your death being a witness to Jesus. Because of who the King is, and because of the message that he speaks, this is who you are as his subjects. You are the royal priests gathered into local lampstands in Jesus' heavenly temple palace, and you share in the Son of Man's victory over death. Because of all of that, look at verse 9. John has the capability to know what to say about himself. 
because he had just experienced this whole vision. He knows what he should write about himself by virtue of who the king is and where he is. And having grasped this, the nature of the king and the nature of his temple, John is able to say this. He says, he is your brother and he is your partner or fellow partaker in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus. John understands that he and you and Jesus are all partners in his kingdom. And the way that you reign with Christ, the way that you conquer with the Son of Man, is precisely by, with the Son of Man, persevering through tribulation and suffering. That is your reign. This is the formula for victory during the church age. To the martyrs under the throne, Jesus gives the comforting word, wait, wait on your king. To us, who are still here, so also he gives the word, wait, trust in your king, and be faithful despite the fact that at the present moment you still live in death's realm. This is why Jesus writes you a letter, because that is a hard place to live. He writes you this letter to help you lift your eyes, as it were, from this realm to the realities of the one to where you actually belong. John writes you this letter, Jesus, rather, writes you this letter to give you the same kind of comfort that he gives John in this passage, John who is in Patmos, that is to say, exiled. The king and the powers and the culture has said, John, you are a criminal. You're an exile. So John, according to the world, is a lonely exile. And Jesus' comforting message to John, as it is to us, is because of the heavenly realities of which you are a part, you are a partner in the victorious kingdom and in the tribulation and in the perseverance that is in Christ Jesus. This is what is more true of you and more significant about you than the fact that you are a lonely criminal in the eyes of Rome. It is as true now <clears throat> as it was for John and as it was for the church in Ephesus and of Pergamum, that to be a partner in the kingdom of Christ is to be a partaker in suffering and trials. To the church in Sardis, he says, some of you are about to be put in prison. Stay faithful. It is true then, and it is true now, that we are always coming up against conflicts that demand patient endurance, conflicts that arouse the call in us, how long? And that force us to set our eyes in what we trust in the most. And Jesus' call, Jesus's call to us is to set our eyes on the horizon of hope. It is just as true today as it was when Jesus spoke with his disciples that we cannot wear the crown without bearing the cross. But it is also neither true that time or distance has diminished 
between John's time and now diminished somehow Christ's love, comfort, comforting care for the church, Jesus' heart towards you. John, Ephesus, Smyrna, Sardis, and Christ the King, Presbyterian Church are all in the same way, Jesus' temple and bride, and you are just as dear to him now as the church was then. Not a single member of those seven churches was any more tenderly loved and cared for than you are. So as you follow the Lamb wherever you go, as you follow, as we like to say, the ancient paths, those same ones walked by John and Ephesus and the church for ages, the path forged, as it were, by the slain Lamb King, and you walk behind him in his bloody footsteps, suffering anything and everything, even unto death, loving not our lives. Behold, your King is with you. Behold here the power of your King. Behold the glory of your King. Behold the presence of your King and hear his precious and comforting words. Fear not. I am the living one. When life appears mysterious, when you run into the kind of suffering or hurt that makes you wish you could look into the secrets of God's eternal plan, the kind of stuff that has you asking, why? When you are in battle against temptations, when you are filled to the brim with anxiety, when the powers that be, the schemes of man are prevailing, and it seems like his church is in peril, when your home is in peril, when your heart is in peril, when the stuff of death comes into the conflict with your life, when your life is utterly desolate, look up. Behold, your king is with you. Meditate on this glorious redeemer. Cultivate. Work hard to cultivate, as it were, a personal familiarity with this king. Strive, as Paul put it, considering everything else a loss compared to knowing Jesus, in order that we might become intimately aware and familiar with the fact of great significance, that as with John, Jesus' right hand is on you, saying, don't fear. I am the living one. I have the death in Hades keys. I will lock death in death forever. Let's pray. Good, gentle, tender, caring, fearsome king. Lord, make yourself known to us through your word, through our sharing in your death daily in our own bodies. 
Grant to us a deeper faith, cultivating familiarity with the power of your resurrection in our everyday lives. Lord, help us. Give us the strength when life, when our life is desolate, to look up and see what is more true than anything else. That you are the conquering Son of Man, and you are with us, and you have made us into a priest and a kingdom and the light of your temple. Seal these truths to our heart. May we walk with an ever increasingly strengthened faith. All these things we pray in your Son's glorious and holy name. Amen.